0: An island in the Pacific and everything about it is terrific. I got the sun to tend me palms to fan me in, an occasional man. You're listening to episode fifty of Sassmouth Dames Podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. During an early scene in the crown jewel of woman's pictures, The Women, from 1939, Denny Moore, as the manicurist Olga, offers some red-hot gossip to her new client, Norma Shearer. Society dames expected to hear some good dish when they sat down to get their nails done. Olga applies the hot goss along with two coats of jungle red. She tells Mary Haynes that the girl who stole Stephen Haynes, Crystal Allen, is a terrible man trap. Then, by way of explaining how Crystal snagged the society husband when she was working the perfume counter, Olga says she's got those eyes that run up and down a man like a searchlight. Crystal Allen was, of course, famously played by Joan Crawford in one of her best roles as a hard-boiled dame. Joan Crawford's eyes were indeed as bright and strong as searchlights, which only grew stronger over time. Crawford's peepers, as bright as twin Klieg lights, spent the 20s and 30s testing their power over men. In the silent picture 12 miles out from 1927, Joan glared at John Gilbert with a warning that said she might be as dangerous as the gun he carried. In the witness stand, falsely accused of theft by her employer, Joan's eyes flash outrage and vow revenge in paid from 1930. The conviction in her eyes exonerates Joan and permits her to get even. Joan's entire performance in Rain stems from what she says with her eyes, from the purest white-hot outrage at Walter Houston to the non-blinking scene where she hoodwinks him into thinking she's submissive and a convert to the Lord. In Sadie McKee from 1934, Joan may push Esther Ralston into a trunk, but the full force of her ire shoots from her eyes when she excoriates Franchot Tone's wealth and privilege— or when she threatens the butler with a bottle. Her eyes tell the men she has their number. Joan's eyes flash with more intensity than the Hollywood Press Club's camera bulbs when she tells Brian Ahern that it's her life and she'll live it the way she wants in 1935. Pasted against a ship's mast and strange cargo from 1940, Joan's anger over how men have treated her is what saves the shipwrecked crew, She'll be her own lighthouse beacon. Joan's ability to challenge men with her eyes only increased with age, but she learned to cool the heat in her gaze so it would last longer. After decades of men who couldn't keep it zipped, tried to cheat her, undermined her, or underestimated her professionally, Joan stored enough wattage behind her eyes to illuminate Madison Square Garden. By the time Joan made Female on the Beach in 1955, she developed an intense glare that has more force than the tracking beams of a prison yard on lockdown. She wields a pair of snow-white eyes so cold that polar bears caught frostbite. Matched with luxuriant brows, strong cheek cheekbones, with a chiseled jawline, Joan Crawford has in real life what the men on Mount Rushmore needed granite and scale to achieve. She is monumental. Everything about Joan's countenance and female on the beach lights a torch for her dedication to discipline, order, and control. I want to take lessons from Joan for how to be as cold as an iceberg when men decide to chip away at her personal sovereignty. A vision of self-possession in this picture, Joan is the ultimate survivor, forged through years of battle with men in the studios, the press, and the bedroom. She didn't sizzle out like Greta Garbo or Norma Shearer did when MGM threw soggy scripts at them. Instead, Joan tapped into the clarity to be gained from a frosty outlook. If Hollywood were the Yukon of Jack London's story to build a fire... Joan is the dog who survives, not the foolish man who dies. Some critics make the mistake of thinking that Joan Crawford is always trying to be sexy. They try to read her or compare her to her performance with the post-war emphasis on sex appeal that we get with, say, Marilyn Monroe or Jane Mansfield. Crawford sports a bullet bra and female on the beach, but that's about all she has in common with those sexy dames. Joan's looking to be bulletproof, not a bombshell. Men, both on and off screen, find Joan Crawford's gaze unsettling. It's because she sees right through their cheap tricks, their ploy, their ruse, their game. Joan's eyes are the torches that shine a light for women in the audience. How should we mature in age? Joan shows us the way. It took years for her to learn and then protect what's precious. For her Jones character, Lynn Markham, it's a room of her own. Space comes at a premium for women like Lynn, who are always expected to share it or make it amenable to a man. Lynn tells the nosy cop who thinks he knows all the answers about her that she had two sisters and they shared a very small room. She tells him, I was never alone. That was something I grew up hungry for. Privacy is what Lynn values above all. As a widow, she feels entitled to it. One morning, she arrives at a beach property her husband owned, ready to take possession from the former tenant. Joan is impeccably dressed at this early hour, with a jewel hair comb, a bib necklace full of gleaming jewels, and a starch white dickey. Few among us could pull off this dramatic ensemble before lunch, but for Joan Crawford, it's as regular as a housecoat would be for a suburban housewife. In this odd beach community, the locals pop in and out of the house as though it were their own clubhouse, where they all have keys to the door. The realtor, a beach gigolo, two cops, neighbors, they don't recognize boundaries. She owns the effin' house. On her first morning alone in the new digs, Jones Lynn Markham is rudely awoken by a beach bum revving an engine outside of her window. Then when she gives up trying to sleep and goes to the kitchen, he's already there acting like his toothbrush is in the medicine cabinet. Drummond Hall, played by Jeff Chandler, attempts to act gallant as he's acting territorial. He's brought a peace offering, some fish. He'll make her coffee and breakfast. He asks her how she likes her coffee. Alone, Lynn snaps. She is in Catherine Hepburn, and this isn't woman of the year. She's perfectly capable of making her own breakfast, her own coffee. Like a page out of some feminist fairy tale, Lynn has to ask three times for her key back from The Stranger in Breton Stripes. The best scene in the picture occurs when the neighbors invite themselves over for a drink. Before they arrive, Lynn had read Eloise's diary, the woman who had been the former tenant who died mysteriously. Behind a loose slate in the hearth, Lynn finds the former tenant's diary with a secret record of events. Lynn discovers that the neighbors, Drummy and his aunt and uncle, what they're really up to. Each entry in the diary looks almost like an anthology of poems. When it starts out, they're beautifully written in a cursive script in solid square paragraphs. Eloise writes in careful, measured tones about meeting Drummy and his aunt and uncle. As the romance develops with the beachcomber, so do evenings together where she loses money at card games, and other times where she's asked directly for a loan. All the tawdry details slip out of Eloise's diary, which Lynn reads in horror. Then as the diary fills with entries and the tarred love affair with Drummy unravels, so does Eloise's writing. The entries sprawl across the pages, filled with a rambling stream of consciousness that describes her loss of happiness, power, and self. As months progress, Eloise's entries become long, rambling, and written in a really sloppy hand. The older couple have soaked her to the tune of $2,400, plus what she lost in the card games. Drummy has turned cold, and now she's told she must leave the house because the owner wants it back. Privately, Lynn cracks up after she reads this and weeps. From Eloise's diary, she realizes that she's just another pigeon for Drummy and his mates. We expect to see Joan pulled into their con game, or for Joan to play along while she secretly revises the plot, as she did with Jack Palance and Gloria Graham in Sudden Fear, when she learned of her doom by the dictaphone recording. But here, Joan shows us the difference between a woman's private and public face. She may fall to pieces alone, but when it comes time to meet the guests, she is colder than Louis B. Mayer during a contract negotiation. Lynn Markham pulls herself together under an icy exterior, frosted white, in an asymmetric neckline party dress. She's not in love, she doesn't owe these people her time, so she lays her card on the table and calls their bluff. Well acquainted with the beach house, the aunt and uncle, played by Natalie Schaefer and Cecil Kellaway, enter as though it were a pigeon coop stuffed with docile birds. Lynn greets them curtly in a here's your hat what's your hairy manner with my favorite line in the picture. I'd like to ask you to stay and have a drink but I'm afraid you'd accept. Natalie and Cecil are flabbergasted at being sussed out so quickly. They may have taken a thousand dames with their grift but Lynn Markham is no easy mark. Lynn doesn't register their unmistakable surprise when she handles the deck with the facility of a Las Vegas croupier. Coolly, with a trace of a smile, she tells them that her husband was a gambler who taught her a thing or two about cards. When Drummy attempts to smooth things over and resume their evening together, Lynn throws a martini in his face. The best part, though, is in the execution, because it looks like she throws an ice bucket in his face. Jeff Chandler is drenched to the bone. Minutes later, after she tosses it, the water is still beating in large droplets off his face. As are Lynn's words when she drags him. I wouldn't have you if you were hung with diamonds upside down. Although there's something about the way Joan says hung that lets viewers know she's begun to think about him differently. Joan's costumes from Sheila O'Brien announce a woman who knows herself and knows how to set a tone, a mood, a look. Just like Joan in real life, her character enjoys dressing for the occasion. What do you wear to sit on the dock reading? Forget sweats or yoga pants. Joan wears an ice cream palette satin blouse with pristine white micro shorts, accessorized with a super skinny black patent belt. The belt is so thin that it's really only decorative, not for actually holding anything in. Joan is on the precipice of 50, looking like a much younger woman. Thighs don't lie. Are you cold? Put on a swing jacket over your short shorts and warm your gams by the fire. Having a drink at home alone? Wear a full skirt with layers of crinoline underneath. When Jones dressed to the nines for a quiet night alone in the beach house, and Drummy swoops in for the big seduction we know is coming, the scene plays out in a grand, dramatic form that looks choreographed to the hilt. First, Lynn pushes Drummy away and runs from the house. He catches up with her on the stairs leading down to the beach and grasps hold of her. She squirms free and runs down onto the beach, where she falls ass over tea kettle, with her perfect stems flying out of the immaculate ruffled crinolines, as though she were a Ziegfeld girl running for her life. How many times did they have to practice the separate bits for one smooth operatic finish? Jones spins around on the sand with more grace than if she were held aloft on the hands of six male quarines. As Eloise Crandall, the former tenant, Judith Evelyn shows up as the antithesis of Joan, how not to age. She injects some camp to lighten the stern glare Joan has to fight off a pack of leeches. Eloise wears a fussy penoir holding a gigantic brandy snifter. She lurches violently around the beach house, mewling for her drummy. Eloise would rate in my top five camp characters. One detective says of her untimely death, she took a swan dive off the top of a brandy bottle. Talk about camp death. Eloise has many good lines, but the best comes from the last entry in her diary, dated the 22nd of September. Just one more drink and then I'll put my makeup on. Only too late does she realize they were just using her, that Drummy wasn't really madly in love with her. Eloise's camp because she fell hook, line, and sinker for tired lines from a pickup artist. Lynn had to say to Drummy, you might at least have rewritten the dialogue. Don't insult her with stale seduction. The balcony on the beach house looks more ramshackle than something in Tornado Alley. And when Drummy repairs it, it looks like he's using kindling to patch the railing. The slipshod railing tells viewers everything we need to know about the beach house. It poses a danger to women in every corner. Jeff Chandler looks good in this. He reminds me of Jeff Goldblum in a way. They have a similar look transformed by muscle. You can sense that beneath their bulky arms and shoulders, they were once vulnerable geeks, skinny and awkward, which somehow only makes them more appealing. When Jeff Chandler looks at Joan, she has his full attention. He wants to earn her regard. She remains visible at all times. Devotees of women's pictures want the reassurance Joan gives that when we look a man in the eye, he takes us seriously. Joan's eyes are a bolt hole for women and a polar blast for men. In one of her stand-up specials filmed for HBO, Carrie Fisher had once quoted her grandmother's advice about why you should avoid envy. It's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. I've always thought envy is one of the seven deadly sins that affords no real pleasure. Even worse, envy creates an unease, a sickness that saps your productivity more effectively than the most resistant virus. Let's extend the wise principle and that tidy little simile to include holding a grudge. Grudges are souring. They put lines on your face. They devour your time and your joy. I would rather let it go, like Edward Arnold tossing a Kalinski off the rooftop in Easy Living. Be cold, like Joan was in Female on the Beach. Keep your thermostat set at Glacier, by all means. That said, I do have one exception to the rule about grudges. I possess an elephantine memory for critics who have written lazy commentary about Joan Crawford. If you tap into the wire hanger vane... I remember it. If you're going to carry water for Joan's Radfink daughter, despite the gross inaccuracies, dozens of reputable testimonials which disavow the accusations, and Joan's tremendous talent and achievement, you lack all credibility. Frankly, it's inconceivable that any man's legacy, who is Joan's peer in the industry, would have suffered as much Bing Crosby, who had worse charges made by his children, is only known today for his records and films. In truth, no one has written a really good book about Joan Crawford. I've read them all. Most are written by men who either trade in slander or just plain make stories up. I keep one eye closed when I read a man writing about Joan Crawford because it's so predictably bad. There's David Brett in his Hollywood Martyr book captioning a picture with Joan and her husband number three saying he disappointed her because he didn't knock her around like the first two husbands. It's incredible that someone gets a book deal to say a woman enjoyed domestic violence. David Thompson has a reputation for being a serious Hollywood scholar. He opines in The Whole Equation, a history of Hollywood, that semen was the inspiration for lip gloss. He goes on to graphic detail about Joan's lips, slick from going down on Louis B. Mayer. Right, because she had to sleep her way to the top. Fred Lawrence Giles claimed in The Last Word that Joan enjoyed creating a schizophrenic look with makeup, where she would overdraw one eye. I've seen thousands of pictures of Joan and never more than one example of what he talks about. In probably the worst book about Joan, The Essential Biography by Lawrence Quirk, he slanders her by saying she was a glorified sex worker for M. G. M. investors. And then he paints her as some lonely saddled drunk that he couldn't bear to be around. Director Vincent Sherman characterizes Joan as an unhinged sex maniac in his book, Studio Affairs, for the simple reason that she initiated sex with him, got on top, and liked it. Some men don't like it when women make the first move, so why aren't we asking what's wrong with them? And then there's the guy that so many people like who began his chapter on Joan with a reference to Christina and Mommy Dearest. And that last one was only in 2018. Do better, men. Do better. I'll close the episode with a brief passage from Joan's autobiography, A Portrait of Joan. On the eve of the new year, 1955, we were shooting Female on the Beach at Universal. At 1.30 p.m., production stopped, and we gathered on Stage 12 for a buffet luncheon. In Hollywood, on the day before Christmas and New Year's, shooting always stops at this time. Each person is permitted only one drink, and by 3 o'clock, everyone who's leaving the lot is asked to be on his way to ensure safe driving. Director Joe Pevney, cameraman Charles Lang, Chef Chandler, Jan Sterling, and I toasted the New Year and each other, had her lunch, and now they were gone. I went to my dressing room, dictated into my soundscriber, studied my script, the day flew. Far too tired to essay the trip home to Brentwood through the holiday traffic, I ordered dinner to set in and phoned the children. They were in their pajamas already, eager for tomorrow's festivities. I explained that it was now dark, people were on the road after cocktail parties, and I didn't want to drive at such a time. They understood, and I promised to be home early in the morning in time for breakfast. Night swept across the empty studio, blotting out the village of tiny houses, swallowing the great sound stages. My dinner eaten, the dishes m- rem- removed, I dictated additional letters into the soundscriber. Finally, it was time to curl up with a stack of newspapers and away the new year. When the phone rang, it created a shocking clatter. Earl Blackwell was calling from Las Vegas. He was with a party of friends. They sounded very convivial as each one came to speak with me. This is Al Steele, said a quiet male voice. Happy New Year, dear. I'd known Alfred and his wife Lillian casually for five years. They were friends of the Werblins, and we'd met in New York at previous dinner parties. Alfred was a most attractive man, president of Pepsi-Cola, He had been a football player, and he looked it, solidly built, heavy-muscled but graceful, with salt-and-pepper hair, a quick grin, and merry blue eyes. What had impressed me was the sense of power he conveyed so quietly, the tenor of his conversation. He was one of the best-informed men I'd ever met, tuned to the world's turning. Exciting but quiet almost, for some reason subdued. Where are you, Joan? He was saying. What party? I'm in my dressing room. Where? In my dressing room at the studio. Alone? Yes. There was a dead silence. Then he shouted, for heaven's sake, girl, why? Why kick up a storm unless there's someone you really want to kick up a storm with? I laughed. I don't particularly like New Year's Eve parties. I've been living here at the studio for weeks. To me, tonight is just another night. We chatted briefly about his flying west on business. I said I hope to see him and his wife. Only a few days later, I read of trouble in the Steele household, and in short order, news of a divorce action. Some strange little shiver of anticipation accompanied the news. If it's right, I thought we'll meet again. We did eventually. First, I had to live through the fright and fulfillment of female on the beach. Then I launched into the drama of a thoroughly selfish bitch, Queen Bee. Columbia had purchased the Edna Lee novel, and Randy McDougall, who had written Mildred Pierce and who had always wanted a crack at directing, was signed at my request as writer-director. Jerry Wald produced. This is the picture where two men and the entire audience want to murder me for the character I portray. Sonny and Leah Ray Worblin came west, and one evening there was a party in their honor at Joseph Cotton's. There would be just six of us, would I come? I almost didn't accept the invitation because working so arduously, I didn't see how I could make it by 6.30, but he was going to be there. I wore a white chiffon dress, a white mink stole, and made it by 6.35. Alfred was waiting. It was as if he'd been waiting a long while. He gave me the dearest look I'd ever seen on a man's face, took my hand, and never let it go. A good friend of ours, Alfred's masseur, Gunnar Oberg, once said that the flintiest of souls couldn't help but respond when Alfred turned his heart's warmth on them. His was the art of breaking down all the barriers that keep human beings shut within walls of self. I remember every moment of that evening and that heart's warmth. At dinner, we talked of his travels, the world he was conquering for Pepsi like Marco Polo. There were new bottling plants in Iraq and South Africa and the Belgian Congo, and he was dreaming further. I'd never met anyone quite like him, a man who invested big business with a romantic challenge, a buccaneer in French cuffs. He was not only strong, he was gentle. His was a boyish quality, very charming, and a high-powered executive. After dinner, he got out a map and indicated all the far-flung places he'd been. He showed me Caracas, 7,000 miles away. He was embarking by air for Caracas in a few days. It must be exhilarating to travel, I said. And he answered, we will. We'll see the world you never knew existed, Joan. I found myself longing to travel. For years, I'd been reluctant to leave Hollywood for one minute. They might forget me. I might miss a good script. A Mildred Pierce might come along and I'd not be there. Now I was eager to travel, and I was afraid of many things, of planes, for example. Planes? I've been known to walk 14 flights of stairs to avoid elevators, I told Alfred. He just smiled, showing me the map, and told me how many hours it took to fly from Crocus to Los Angeles. He'd return to see me, he said. He'd have 20 hours before flying back to New York for a Monday morning conference. 7,000 miles for 20 hours, I thought. But but you knew that whatever this man said he'd do, he'd do. He arrived back in Hollywood on a Saturday, and we spent the day on the set watching a shoot. It seemed unfair for him to sit on a soundstage, this active man. At dinner that night he said, Joan, I'm going to marry you. He never did get around to asking me, just I'm going to marry you, and a few hours later he was gone. There was never a question, never a reservation in his mind, or mine, that I was going to be his wife. The chemistry was right, and beyond chemistry, a breathtaking premonition of new horizons, a new way of life. On his next visit, Alfred spent most of the time at our house so the children could become acquainted with him. He had two children of his own, grown-up Sally by one marriage, and seven-year-old Sonny by another. Devoted to them, he understood how I felt about my children and never for a moment either patronized them or relegated them to the background as some suitors have. He talked to their comprehension, not only to that of the older children, but that too of Cindy and Kathy, who were only eight. One Sunday morning, the twins, Alfred and I were having brunch in our house, and when we had finished, Alfred lit a cigarette and handed it to me across the table. Two amazed pair of eyes, round as dollars, followed this transaction. Kathy said, you must like him very much, mommy, to do that. I do, darling. I love him very much. Two knives and two forks dropped. They'd heard me speak of love all their lives. I love you every day of the world to them and to their sister and brother. But this was the first time they had ever heard me apply the word to a man. Alfred was darling. He said, I'm going to marry your mother. Do you mind? Kathy said, I don't know. Cindy said, I'm glad. Now we can have another baby. Darlings, I said, we've had all the babies we're going to have in this family. The next one will be yours. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back soon with episode 51 on Joan Collins in The Girl in the Red Velvet Swing from 1955. Thanks so much. Bye.